Well, I didn't get any better than that, does it? <laughs> Aren't we blessed? Sunday by Sunday with this music and worship team and choir, I thank the Lord for that. I want to ask you to join with me in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. There was a man who ordered a barometer for his home, and when it arrived, he opened the package and found its measure was stuck on a hurricane. And it wouldn't move. And he shook the thing. He banged it against the table a few times. was terribly frustrated with it. And finally wrote off a harsh letter to the company that made it. He went on to work the next day. And when he came home, the barometer was gone. And so was his house. A hurricane had come through and tore it up. He had been warned, but he did not get himself on the right side of the warning. In this day, we are cajoled, and I feel frankly manipulated, into getting on, quote, the right side of history. That phrase is often used to cajole and manipulate the people of God to abandon biblical views. Everything from the death and resurrection of Christ and Jesus being the only way and the only legitimate Savior to biblical morality and sexuality. I feel manipulated. There's a notion that in a few decades, those who come after us will evaluate us and wonder what we were thinking and doing. And apparently the big motive is to make sure that in their eyes, in years to come, that we did the right thing with ethics, morality, and Christ in this day. Daniel has a different message. He says, don't worry so much about the right side of history. That is simply the collective wisdom of failed, fallen human beings who themselves need a Savior, who themselves are standing before God in need of mercy. Do, do not take that too seriously. Don't worry too much about that. You don't need to worry too much about being on the right side of history. You need to worry more about being on the right side of prophecy. You need to worry and concern yourself with evaluating what will take place later when we stand before the judgment bar of God. Not are we on the right side of the evaluation of those who come after us, but are we on the right side of the God who is the judge of all the earth, or to use Daniel's terms, the most high God. Amen. You see, Christian thinking and thought takes into account some very large pieces of history. There's creation. And so therefore we ask the question, did God create us for this? Well, it's rather obvious when it comes to morality and sexuality, God created us for some things and not others. And then there's the corruption of the fall. Adam and Eve plunging the whole world into sin, and we ourselves are corrupt. And so are we manifesting or battling that corrupt nature? And then there are the commands of God. Uh, God commands us to do some things. He's wise, He's very loving, very kind, doesn't get anything out of our obedience, frankly. Uh, but we do. And so are these things consistent with the commands of God? And, and then children are a very dominant um, part of thinking through Christian morality and theology. Uh, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, he promised a seed that would come and would uh, uh, and seed descendants are very important to God. And so is this in the best interest of children? And, and then there is Christ. What did Christ say about these things? Matthew 19, 4, for example, Jesus said, In the beginning, He created them male and female. And so Jesus legitimized Genesis 1 and 2 in its perspective on humanity. And then finally, there is the conclusion, what some theologians call the consummation. When God wraps up everything and judges all men and women and nations for their response to His Son. All of these things factor into a complex system of thinking where we evaluate modern movements and notions. And I want us to look at the last one this morning. How God brings everything to a conclusion and urge us not to worry so much about being on the right side of history as we are the right side of prophecy. That's what the Lord tells Daniel in Daniel 
chapter 12. Well, the question this morning is, what prophetic events do I need to consider so I may position myself on the right side of history, God's side of history? Well, the first one is this, found in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, and that is the tribulation. God has warned and threatened the earth that without Jesus Christ, human beings will face a time of distress and tribulation on the earth as He prepares for the return of the Son. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, he says to Daniel. And there shall be a time of trouble. Now watch this. A time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time of distress and trouble. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, a promise to those who have repented and placed faith in Jesus Christ, that they're written in God's book of life. So the first, um, the first prophetic event uh, that we need to make sure we're on the right side of is the tribulation here in the text. Now look what he says here. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. In other words, this will be such a distressing time on the earth when God judges the earth and those that have not received Christ as Savior that it is incomparable to any other time in human history. In other words, there's never been a time as much where there will be as much trouble. Now John elaborates on this in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18 where a third of the earth's water is turned into blood where a quarter of the earth's population is immediately eliminated and executed by the wrath of God, where God pours out his cleansing fury upon the earth. And he says here in the text, there has never been a time with so much trouble at all. You, you mean to tell me that this time of trouble is worse than World War I with its trenches and its chemical warfare? You mean this time is uh, more trouble than World War II with its bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, its atomic bombs? You mean to tell me this is worse than 9-11? Absolutely. There has never been a time, never will be a time, as troubling as the tribulation that God pours out on the earth. Because all of these aforementioned examples are what humans do. This last one is what God will do. The tribulation. Now why in the world would God go through or put the earth through this. Well, it reminds me back when uh, Jonathan and Hannah Grace graduated from high school. We invited the whole family from at least uh, four states to come to Fort Worth, Texas to uh, celebrate this great graduation of Jonathan and Hannah Grace. They graduated the same year. And I will never forget the preparations we put into that thing. I, I don't know if I've still paid for it, uh, quite frankly. But uh, we put in all sorts of preparations for that graduation party. We cleaned every corner. We cleaned every closet. We cleaned every shelf. I still have nightmares about the things I found. We're looking for things to clean. So we cleaned everything we could in preparation for this great event. We put the home through a great tribulation in order to make it ready and honorable for our children. One day, Jesus is going to split the eastern sky. And Jesus Christ is going to come and take office of the earth and the heavens as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's already been elected on the election day of the resurrection. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's in the interim time now where he's simply waiting to take office. And the Father wants the whole earth cleansed of all evil, everything that offends, everything that's unholy and impure because his son has suffered enough. He will never suffer moral pollution ever again. He's going to cleanse it. And then Christ will come back and he will claim his own. Why is there a time of tribulation? Well, it is certain that God loves us, but he loves Jesus as well, and he's going to give him a clean earth on which to rule. And that's the tribulation. So how can I get on the right side of that? The Bible teaches in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, you can miss the wrath of God when you repent and place faith in Jesus Christ. Repudiate anything that keeps you from Jesus Christ and trust the cross and resurrection alone for the mercy and grace and forgiveness that you need for your guilt before God. That's the tribulation. But there's a second prophetic event talked about here on the text in verses 2 and 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake 
some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine. The brightness of the firm, like the brightness of the firmament, brightness of the, of the skies. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and forever. This is the second event, and that's the resurrection here in the text. Now, a couple of questions. Uh, one, is this material? I mean, are we talking literal here? Is God actually going to raise the bodies of the dead from the grave? Is this going to be material? Is this merely figurative? figurative? Is this merely spiritual? Or is it material and is it physical? Well, let me ask you a few questions. What was the creation of the heavens and earth? When God created the heavens and the earth, what, was that um, spiritual or was it material? Well, it was both, wasn't it? God created the spirit. God created the matter of the human body. Uh, what about the, the birth of Jesus Christ? Was that a spiritual event or was that a material event? Well, it was both, wasn't it? What about the resurrection of Christ? Was that spiritual or material? Well, it was both. He bodily raised Jesus from the dead. God has a bias in favor of both the spiritual and the material. And I don't understand why then, with prophecy and future things in the scripture, why he would change his way of operation. The text is very, very clear that he will raise the bodies from the dead and transform the bodies of believers into something glorified, permanent, eternal that cannot, cannot be corrupted. And so uh, the second question is, are there multiple resurrections? Well, yes, the Bible teaches that. There will be a resurrection of believers. There will be a resurrection of unbelievers, John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. And then in Revelation 20, we find a resurrection of saints who give themselves to Christ during the tribulation. And so, yeah, there are multiple resurrections. Um, there's the resurrection of Lazarus. There's a the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know why that would be a surprise to anybody. Now, what is the meaning of these? Well, verse 2 says, Some will be raised to everlasting life, and they will be fit and prepared for life in the kingdom of God. They need a material, physical body, because life in the kingdom is material and physical without the corruption that we have now. God will remove the curse, and we will live as we were intended to live in a spiritual and material world, a kingdom, much like he anticipated in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 before it was corrupted by the fall. But then, that's not all. Some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There will be some that will be raised to shame and everlasting contempt. They will be raised to judgment. I've studied this passage for some time, and it reminds me of the time in fourth grade when I um, wasn't really behaving in line, the lunch line, uh, at school. And I was uh, a bit jittery and uh, a bit too active, I should say, uh, at that moment, at that time. And I happened to be wearing some very heavy boots. Uh, and I remember stepping back and hearing a crunch and the cry and whimper of a fourth grade teacher. I stepped on that poor woman's toe and broke it. Well, she was already frustrated. The year. And so, with a broken voice, she sent me to the platform there in the lunchroom. And so I marched dutifully over, I sat down, and other than the broken toe of my fourth grade teacher, who I thought really was wonderful, I sat down and turned and looked at the second horrifying thing in that moment, and that was an entire lunchroom of kids looking at me, knowing everything I had just done. I sat there in shame and contempt. I thought about that for a while, and I thought, you know what? What if I was still sitting on that platform in front of that hostile crowd of kids? What kind of shame and contempt would be heaped upon me through these years? How shameful and uh, despised would I feel all through these years, all through these decades, if I was still sitting there? Do you know that there is coming a resurrection day of all unbelievers who have not sworn their allegiance to Jesus Christ, who have not trusted this cross and resurrection, when they will be raised to a resurrection of shame and contempt? Speaking of the right side of history, may I discourage you from doing something, please? Would you please do all you can 
to set up those friends in the LGBTQ community for a resurrection of joy and everlasting life and not a resurrection of shame and contempt? Would you not be a stumbling block to them, please? And especially avoid being a stumbling block by approving of sexual sin. Whenever you give approval to sexual sin, you are giving approval to something that is disgusting to God. And it's not just LGBTQ sexual behavior, it's heterosexual behavior. And we have been preaching on that for decades. We don't pick on anybody. When it comes to marriage, we have a long history here at Beach Haven at telling incompatible couples you don't need to get married. One of our staff members was in the office a few years ago, and a fellow called him on Monday and said, would you marry my fiancé and me on this Friday? I mean, just in five days. We don't do that around here. We require premarital counseling. It's what we do. And he got a little suspicious of this particular fellow. He said, now, how, how come so quick? And have you been married before? He said, oh, yeah, I've been married five times before. This is my sixth time. I think I'll get it right this time. And he had to turn him down. We, we don't do that. So we're not picking on anybody. We have a long history of standing on the word of God and saying no to that which God prohibits and yes to that which he permits. But you need to know that if you endorse the behavior and sexual behavior of anyone in any community when it violates the word of God, I know you don't mean to, and I know you're trying to be compassionate, be a friend, but that's what makes it so bad. By being compassionate and being a friend, you're persuasive, and you're persuading them to live a life that God is going to judge. And the Bible is very clear that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. So would you knock it off and quit hurting people in that community spiritually and eternally? You're not helping anyone. You see, you have to understand something. You and I are not the judge. He doesn't give us a vote over what's right and what's wrong. He alone is Lord, and he determines the terms by which we enter the kingdom. And here's the term. We have saving faith in Jesus Christ that is so real, it transforms us and makes us pure in every area of life over the years to come. So please, please do not be a stumbling block to anyone in any community, even if support of sexual immorality grows popular. Please don't do that. God loves people in the LGBT community. God wants to save. God wants to reconcile. He wants to purify people of impurity. Don't help them live an impure life by approving of sexual immorality. Get on the right side of the resurrection. Love them enough to tell them the truth. But then there's a third prophetic event that uh, is probably the first time you've heard of this. And it reminds me of my New Testament professor, Dr. McGorman. He uh, would say in his uh, Scottish brogue that he was convinced, and y'all, this is um, about 1990. He said, um, I uh, am certain that in our day there has been a knowledge explosion but I don't believe there has been a wisdom explosion. Well, some of that's going to be reversed here in verse number four. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Now, John the apostle opened it in Revelation. Actually, the Lamb opened it in Revelation 4 and 5, and John articulated it from chapter 6 to, verse, uh, to chapter 18. And here's what he says. Many shall run to and fro. That's usually a positive reference of seeking God and seeking something right and pure. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Here's what the text is saying. Daniel, the knowledge I've given you in the book of Daniel, people are going to run to and fro in the future to learn more biblical prophecy. They will be in a hurry to accumulate it. I've done a search on Amazon and found 18,900 books on prophecy in the area of religion and spirituality at Amazon. 18,900 books on that. That doesn't include all the articles. 
That doesn't include the websites. That doesn't include those things that are not published or printed or sold by Amazon. Not at all. 18,900. In other words, there has been for some time now a tremendous interest in biblical prophecy. Why is that? Because even about these future things, God has given us not all the light there is, but he's given us enough light on which to act. So what do we do? How do we get on the right side of prophecy? Well, you've done something about it today. You've come here, and you have learned. Continue to do that and keep it up. There's a fourth prophecy here in the text, in chapter 12, verse 1, and verses 5 and 8. He says that there, at that time, Michael, who guards Israel, uh, the, or the Jewish people, at that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Now, who were Daniel's people? The, 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 the Jews. And, and so Michael the archangel stands over the great Jewish people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people, the Jews, shall be delivered everyone who's found written in the book. During the tribulation period, Satan, the original anti-Semite, will pour out fury upon the Jewish people in that time. And here, the text says, any of those that have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be delivered in that time. So there's a prophecy here about Israel. Verses 5 through 8. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank, the other on the other river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, well, how long shall be the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand. Great sincerity here. And swore by him who lives forever and ever that it shall be for a time, times and half a time, three and a half years. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. And although I heard, I did not understand. And then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And I'll get to that in just a moment. Here he's talking about the holy people and the length of the awful anti-Semitic persecution the Antichrist will launch on them. And he is also indicating exactly what Paul indicated in Romans 11:26 that in that day all Israel, and this is a quotation, all Israel will be saved. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 with his descendants. And he promised he would give great protection and great honor to the Jewish people. They would bring the Messiah in. But since that time, Satan has done all that he can to oppose and punish them for bringing in the Messiah. He tried to prevent them from bringing in the Messiah into the world through the Amalekites, through the Canaanites, the Hittites, Jebusites, Perizzites, and others. And uh, he failed. And since that time, he's done all that he can to punish the Jewish people for bringing the Messiah in. The text in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where God made his promise to Abraham warns that anyone that opposes and persecutes the Jewish people will be judged by God. And I want to ask you, have you ever seen a modern day Canaanite? Have you ever seen a modern day Jebusite? Have you ever seen a modern day Hittite? Do you know of any of those remaining from the 30s and 40s that were part of the Nazi party? They are all gone and obliterated from the earth. God kept his promise. So here's how we get on the right side of prophecy. Make sure no one ever lures you into an anti-Semitic posture towards the Jewish people. Make sure that never happens. But there's a fifth prophecy, and that is mystery. There's an awful lot of mystery here in the text. In fact, look what Daniel said in verse 8. Daniel has some questions still, despite all the clarity God brings to him. My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And then he responds, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up. I've told you enough, not going to tell you anymore. And th there are several mysterious things here in the text. There is mysterious concealment. He, we just read that in verse uh, 9, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. Now, why is that? Well, I, I don't know. The text doesn't explain. But I do know that Jesus had a lot to say to the apostles, but he withheld it for a while till after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. 
And then through the Holy Spirit, he moved on them and inspired them to write the scripture. And so there's additional revelation that closes firmly at the end of the book of Revelation that Jesus gave by the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And he explained that he did not give them all of the New Testament while he walked on earth in John chapter, 12, verse, uh, John chapter 16, verse 12, where he said, I have many other things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You cannot bear them now. The apostles apparently were not strong enough to receive all the insight God would give to them later in the New Testament. And so he waited till they were mature enough to receive it. And is that not the way God does with us? I have found that God's will is often that way. Oftentimes people want to know, what does God want me to do next year, 10 years from now, and on and on. And I have found that knowing God's will and God's mind about a decision is much like walking through a forest at night in the dark with the flashlight. The flashlight just gives you enough light to take the next step or two, but it doesn't show you all the way through. And that's generally what God does. God gives us just enough light to take the next step or two, and we trust him for what we do not see. And that's what Daniel is having to do here. So there's a mysterious concealment. Then there's, uh, in verse 10, mysterious reactions. I don't understand this. Many shall be purified and made white and refined. Well, that I do understand. With the great God that's exalted in Daniel, and especially chapter 12, I can understand people running to God that he might cleanse them and refine them and make them pure as um, white linen. But this, this is what I don't understand. After God is exalted the way he's exalted, especially in his son, in the book of Daniel, it says here, but the wicked, they shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. It is, having known Jesus now for more than three decades, it is still a mystery to me why the whole earth doesn't rush to him. Why the whole earth doesn't trust him. I don't understand. I've never understood that. That is a, that is a mystery. I don't think I ever will be able to understand that. Then verses 11 and 12. There's mysterious precision. From that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, this is something that would take place in the tribulation, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, that's 30 more days than what he said back in chapters 9 through 11. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Apparently, God will begin to restore all things after that time. In other words, we've got some numbers here that are very precise and very measurable with historical events. That is a marvelous mystery. What they all refer to, I don't know. But what you need to know is that only the Bible gets that detailed and precise with numbers and days and events. No other sacred book of any of the other religions engages in detailed prophecy. Now, why is that? Well, let me ask you this. What kind of quality must you have to engage in detailed, specific prophecy? Even the naming the number of days that would take place. Well, what, what mental quality must you have to say in detail what's going to happen in the future? You've got to have all knowledge, do you not? We call that omniscience, omni-all science knowledge. You've got to have all knowledge, not only of what is true now, but what will be true of the future. Well, Muhammad certainly didn't have it. And the Buddhas who uh, inscribed the Vengeti certainly didn't have it. And those that uh, have fostered other world religions did not have omniscience available to them. Only the prophets and apostles of the word of God had access to God himself. And God is omniscient. This is one of the strongest and most cogent defenses of the inspiration and divinity of the Bible. What a remarkable thing. And it's wonderfully mysterious. And then, well, it does remind me in one particular church that believed that people could stand up and make authoritative pronouncements about the future. They, they call it the gift of prophecy. It's a misunderstanding of the biblical gift, but uh, they'd stand up and make authoritative pronouncements about the future in this particular church during a time of their service. And one man stood up and said, Thus says the Lord, Just as Abraham led the children of Israel out of Egypt... So I will lead you into a better day. And his wife nudged him and pulled him down. And he stood back up and said, Thus says the Lord, I was mistaken, it was Moses. 
you'll get it later. Okay, go read your Bible, all right? Listen, Abraham did not lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. It was Moses that did that. You see, when humans begin to engage in detailed, uh, specific, predictive uh, statements about the future, they're oftentimes wrong, even sometimes when they quote the Bible of all things. But God is precisely right. Then there's mysterious grace found here as well in verse number 13. Now look what he says. But you go your way to the end. Uh, Literally, um, the Lord tells Daniel, but you, Daniel, go to the end. Keep going. Daniel, you're in your 90s. Keep going to the end. And then for you shall rest. Well, my soul, he's not had any rest since he was a teenager at all. He was not able to rest in the days when he was tempted to compromise his Hebrew diet and the restrictions there with uh, the king's delicacies. He's not been able to rest since the king wanted to kill all the wise men because they couldn't interpret his prophecy in Daniel 2. He couldn't rest over anxiety over his uh, friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. He he couldn't rest. He couldn't rest, certainly, uh, uh, with um, uh, the conspiracy in the court to throw him in the lion's den. But here God promises him, after all of your suffering and struggle, you will find a day when you will rest, and you will arise to your inheritance. Your inheritance was lost in Israel when you were transported there to this land. You were to inherit some land there. I've got a greater inheritance for you, and you shall do it at the end of the days. John R.W. Stott was a marvelous uh, Christian author, preacher, and leader of the evangelical world following World War II. He passed away about 10 years ago. I think he authored more than 50 books and edited many, many others. He really shaped and formed the thinking of many Christians throughout the English-speaking world, and really his work's been translated into multiple languages all over the world uh, concerning the Bible and missions and faithfulness to Christ really was a great evangelical leading voice. I've got many of his books on my own shelf. And uh, in fact, we've had his minister of music, Noel Tredenick, here in our church a couple of times, uh, where he pastored uh, all souls uh, in, uh, in London. Uh, Os Guinness, a, another British author, was visiting with John Stott about three weeks out from his death. And John Stott was incapacitated. He was laying on his bed. He was barely able to whisper but he roused himself for an hour to talk to Oz Guinness and to share with him some great memories. And it was time for Oz Guinness to leave. And he looked at John Stott and he said, John, how may I pray for you? And three weeks out from his death, John Stott said, pray for me that I will be faithful to Jesus till my very last breath. At that moment, at that time, Moments from death, his heart was still bursting aflame for faithfulness to Jesus Christ. He, he may have heard what the Lord told Daniel in verse 13, but you, Daniel, go to the end. Go to the end. We need to be on the right side of prophecy as John Stott was. There's a tribulation coming. We get on the right side by repenting and placing faith in Christ. There's a resurrection coming. We need to prepare the world for everlasting life, not contempt and shame by approving of sin. We, we need to be prepared for an explosion in knowledge by doing what we're doing here today and every day immersing ourselves in the Word of God. There is coming of time where Israel will take the center stage again. We can never be anti-Semitic. And then, it's a great mystery, but we know enough now to do the will of God. Don't worry about the mysteries, just do what he has already said. Some preacher said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that trouble me, it's the parts I do understand. And there's enough that we understand to follow God with all that we've got. So we need to be less concerned with the right side of history and more intent about the right side of prophecy. Now all of these prophecies have got two things in common. One, God performs them. We Christians don't bring the kingdom. We just verbally communicate the gospel and invite people to come to Christ. When it comes to the tribulation and other uh, prophecies that God gives, God is the one who performs that we do not. God does it. God is the one that performs these things. And the second thing they all have in common is that there isn't anyone that's going to keep him from doing it. 
There's not a popular vote. There's not a legislature. There's not a palace. There's not a White House. There's not an opinion. There's not a public poll. There's not a survey. There is not one item in all of human living that can keep God from fulfilling his end-time plan, which primarily is to magnify Christ and exalt him as King of kings and Lord of lords. That will happen, and no one will keep it from happening. That's two things all of these have in common. And from election to election in the United States and other places, we may have some uncertainty about who will occupy the White House, but we will never have uncertainty about who will occupy the throne. Jesus Christ occupies the throne. So what do I need to do now to be on the right side of prophecy? Well, let me ask you, are you humble before God about your guilt before him? Do you believe, like the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We've turned to our own behavior, our own opinion, our own model for relationships, our own beliefs, our own assumptions, our own disposition, and in doing so have turned away from God. And that makes us guilty before him. Are you humble enough before God to admit that? Well, if so, there's hope. And then do you trust in your heart the death and resurrection of Christ? Romans 4.25 says he was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Do you trust the death of Jesus Christ is enough to save, cleanse, forgive, and make you right with God? If you do, there's hope. And then finally, are you willing to cry out to him today and ask him to forgive? Romans 10.11 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. Do you trust that? Let's quickly stand and let's talk to God about it. Our Father, we praise you that you are Lord and the future will unfold just as you have promised. But God, we need to confess we have given too much respect to worldly and oftentimes ungodly voices. We've been intimidated. We've allowed ourselves to be bullied sometimes and cowed by those who really don't know better. We pray instead, dear God, that we would hear in ungodliness, in error, something akin to someone from the KKK or a terrorist speaking to us. We pray that we would always maintain love and compassion, but let us be as revolted by things that oppose your word and your will as we would these things. And we pray instead that in these moments, O oh God, you would teach us to treasure Jesus Christ and magnify him. Some here, Lord, need to do that first by turning to him in faith. And we plead for you to work by your Holy Spirit to make that happen. Others need to follow you in baptism like Rachel Marie did today. Others need to become part of Beach Haven. We pray they would as well. We pray that every need, every burden, every bit of guilt, and even every joy, would be given to Jesus Christ today and that you would get everything for him that you intended to get by creating and making this day. Now, as you keep praying, let me give you a little instruction about what we'll do. We have staff here at the front and when we'll start singing. And if you have a spiritual need that you want help with, any of the needs I've mentioned, maybe something I haven't mentioned, you step out from where you are and come. There are hundreds of these have done that here. It's not unusual here. It's public, but it's really more convenient than anything else. The moment you come, our members will start praying for you that you will have the insight and the help of God to make your decision. They'll do that. That's why we do this. And so we want to give you the opportunity. I'm going to finish my prayer. We'll start singing, and we invite you to come. Lord God, we pray in these moments that every word of our mouth, every meditation of our heart, will be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' strong name we pray, amen. Okay, you come. You come. Softly and tenderly, Jesus.